Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, has the Me Too movement run into trouble? It all started with a simple hashtag. In 2017, Alyssa Milano called for people to share their experiences of sexual assault on Twitter using the words Me Too. 24 hours later, half a million replies had been posted. As the outpouring of stories flooded in, the movement put giants of industry, academia and show business in its crosshairs. The careers of powerful men were toppled around the world and the most famous US scalp was the Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Thanks to Me Too, women's testimonies of sexual harassment or assault are much more likely to be believed than they were and crimes more likely to be punished. But the mass shaming that drove Me Too forward also took an axe to due process in some cases and critics reckon it doled out public censure before guilt could be established or defences mounted. My guest has bent her formidable legal and philosophical mind to untangling the moral complexities of Me Too. Martha Nussbaum is one of America's most renowned philosophers and its best-known living female practitioner. She began her teaching career at Harvard in the 1970s as a student of John Rawls, the great liberal thinker. But she left after being denied tenure, she believes, on grounds of her sex. For the last 40 years or so, her work on feminism and social justice has influenced public policy. She created development approaches for the UN and today teaches the lawmakers of the future at the University of Chicago. Her new book is Citadels of Pride and it has some probing questions about the balance of rights and wrongs as the Me Too era matures. Martha Nussbaum, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, Anne. Very nice to be here. Now, you've been teaching philosophy for over 30 years. The book that you've just published out of a a lot of academic writing and also public policy focuses on the moral quandaries that arise from the Me Too movement and questions around that. Why did you turn to that topic now? I started getting the idea for this book during the hearings for the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh because what I saw was that there were two big misunderstandings in the discussion that was going on. First of all, I found that Americans didn't really understand what was the difference between sexual assault and sexual harassment, which are treated very, very differently under law in the United States. They were kind of ill-informed about the whole legal structure. And I wanted to bring that out because I think it is quite important. But second, and, and it goes with this, is that they thought that somehow the Me Too movement was the beginning of women's demand for change in these areas. And that began in 2017. And I wanted to bring out that, no, it's a much longer story. It began in the 1970s, and it involves many people who are not Hollywood celebrities, but working lawyers and many women of color 
who were involved in this movement as both lawyers and plaintiffs. So I wanted to bring out the stories of the the unknown people who really made this revolution possible. When you say this movement, I'm going to take us back to basics and say, well, what is this movement? If it's simply saying women should not be sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, two different things, as you say, but with some sort of obvious commonalities of, of theme and approach, why is the law sort of not good enough to have just delivered the kind of progress on that that you might have expected? Starting around 1970, the, the revolution began by saying women can claim a sexual assault even if they haven't fought back. It was customary, and in fact, the law was written to say that a woman was not raped unless she had put up what was called earnest resistance. So in other words, you had to do what no one would think you really should do, that is risk your life by resisting the attacker. And so to struggle to get to the point where just saying no was enough, that took about 15 years. But then after that, there was still more to be done because women sometimes didn't say no because they were too terrified or frozen. So to move from no means no to affirmative consent is where we are now. It's come a long way, and some states do have affirmative consent, but some states do not. And so we're still struggling to get a woman's affirmation of consent to be the law of the land. As for sexual harassment, the word itself did not exist until around early 1970s. The very idea that workplace sexual harassment was an offense took a very long time because people thought, oh, well, that's something personal. It's eroticism. Boys will be boys. And a lot of men actually thought this was bad behavior, but it was on a personal level. There was no, nothing we could do to make rules or laws about it. So to get to the point where sexual harassment in the workplace was seen as a kind of sex discrimination took quite a long time. I want to uh, turn to your personal experience because you say you've been a victim of both sexual harassment and sexual uh, assault. How did you deal with these situations? Well, it was too long ago, actually, to deal with it. it they were the, the sexual assault was well before these reforms in law. And it was a funny case because I had actually consented to intercourse, but not to violent acts within intercourse. So I knew that if I went to the police, they would say, oh, well, you consented and you had him up to your apartment. And it just, nothing would have happened. I later thought of coming out with the story when that same individual was running for Congress. So in the end, I, I didn't because I thought, well, I mean, in fact, legal authorities warned me not to do it because they said, you'll be charged with extortion. And it was after the statute of limitations, so I couldn't make a formal complaint. Did did you feel that you let this person off the hook? By the time that I thought of coming forward much later, he had become a born-again Christian and he had stopped drinking. And by all accounts, he had cleaned up his act. So I don't know that I particularly wanted to punish him 20 years later. What I did think is that for him to hold a position of public trust by serving in Congress was a bit much, given that record. But as to the sexual harassment, I I have written about this. At Harvard at the time, there was no policy. Harvard was one of the first places that put in a, a code, and they put it in after I was on the faculty. But this was while I was earlier still a graduate student. And lots of women were harassed by this same person, my thesis advisor. 
So one of the women decided she would report it. And she went to the department chair, who was a very, very good and very sensitive man, but he didn't know what to do. So he took the offender aside and he said, you know, so-and-so, and and he, he named the woman, has told me about what what you did, and you really can't behave like this. But then, of course, he he did get angry, and he did retaliate against this woman and said, well, I will never serve on her dissertation committee anymore, which meant she didn't have any well-known person in her actual field to write letters, and she suffered through her whole career. She got a job in a small college rather than a big university. So I've always felt guilty toward this woman, and I, I... value her work and I value her greatly. So I recently did write a long article for her retirement talking about what, what great contributions she's made because she was a kind of heroine, but but she couldn't achieve anything because there was no system. So this is a book really about the importance of system and law. It's very important to have a workplace structured by rules that are public, everyone's on notice, and I think sexual harassment has gone way, way down just because men see the rules and they know they can be disciplined if they don't follow the rules. I think most men didn't even think about this. It was so They were so uneducated that they thought, oh, this is eroticism, it's perfectly okay. There are new norms emerging in the wake of the Me Too movement and the phenomenon of mass sharing of experience also means a mass shaming of alleged perpetrators. Do you think that leaves us with a fresh moral quandary in all this naming and shaming? Well, I think so long as there are rules and we're, they're written down, there are tribunals to adjudicate offences that have some degree of due process, maybe not the same as a court of law, but some standard that you can confront witnesses against you and, and so forth. That's fine. But the shaming, on the other hand, I think is deeply problematic. Punishments by shame are an old story. We've gone through centuries where, you know, witches were punished by the shame of the community. And what in effect is happening is the community, not due process of law, is punishing the offender. And that is essentially problematic because we've we've decided that we want a criminal law system that has certain standards of evidence, certain standards of proof. And in this case, the crowd is just ganging up on the person. It may be that there's nothing else to be done. And of course, in cases where the statute of limitations has lapsed, then that seems to be the only thing that people can do. So for that reason, most states in the U.S. are moving quickly to abolish the statute of limitations for rape so that women can bring a formal legal complaint. But Professor Nussbaum, it does sound to me like you think the Me Too movement has a problem when it comes to the mass sharing and mass shaming. But the message hasn't been keep to your professional body or the law. It's been tell it like it is, put it all out there. Isn't that a problem for this cause as you see it? Look, I think the movement has done two very good things. First of all, the the sharing of information has made empowered women to go forward and, and bring a formal legal complaint. And before that, they would have thought, oh, it's all me and maybe I was wrong and maybe I'm the one who was to blame. But the sharing has empowered women to see, no, it's never all right. And now I can go forward and make a complaint and a lot of other women will support me. The other thing that the Me Too movement has done is to get professions that are recalcitrant, get them going. I mean, the performing arts used to have no rules. and Anything a big star wanted to do was okay. But now you can see 
music organizations, opera organizations, all the unions are creating codes. Here in Chicago, the new chair of our board of trustees is a feminist lawyer who's absolutely determined that there's going to be none of that in the lyric opera. So, you know, it's gotten people going to make rules better. Those are the good things. But I think the bad thing is a case where so far there's not much evidence, but there's just a, a story out there that goes viral and then a career topples. I think there should always be a hearing and there should be sifting of evidence and there should always be due process. So, so, so there are instances that trouble me greatly. Your book is called The Citadels of Pride and the argument, I suppose, for that title, as, as you put it, pride and greed to form eroticism, leading to a view that a woman is a token of money and status and that that perpetuates, shall we say, an acceptance or has led to a, a level of acceptance of sexual violence against women, which has been toxic. I'm interested that pride is the concept that you start from there. I've heard lots of explanations about what the origins of this are. I haven't heard it ascribed to pride before. What took you there? Well, first of all, I start with objectification, the phenomenon of treating a woman as a thing when, of course, she's really a person. And I talk about that and then say, well, what leads people to behave that way? And pride I use in a very particular sense. It's really Dante who's my inspiration. And Dante in Purgatorio, the master vice is superbia, pride. And the proud are depicted as bent over like hoops so that they can't see the outside world. They can only see themselves. So it's a kind of narcissism deformation of the whole personality. Now, of course, sometimes people have pride in one area, not in another. They might have class pride and not race pride or race pride, but not class pride and so on. But what more or less all men have for long centuries been raised to have is the sense that they do not need to take the woman's autonomy and her full subjective reality seriously. She's there as something to serve their interests. So that's what I mean by gender pride. And of course, sometimes women are treated okay because it's useful to have a woman in your home who's happy and who does the things you want her to do in the home. But it can also, in other contexts, fuel violence and, and sexual assault. And it's never good. It's never good to deny the full autonomy and the full subjectivity of another human being. So that's what I mean by pride. And I think that underlies this pervasive phenomenon of treating women like things when they're really people, ignoring their autonomy, ignoring their subjectivity, treating one as rather like another. If you get rid of one, you can always have another. And so, so those phenomena of objectification, feminists had talked about for many years. But I wanted to say there's something deeper, a kind of horribly deformed narcissism that underlies it. What about this idea of toxic masculinity? It's a phrase you use in your writing and you've called for universities to do more to tackle it. Isn't there a danger that calling something toxic, in essence, is read as being an attack on men as a whole. Look, the book very clearly means not to be an assault on all masculinity. It's a defense of respectful, courteous, curious masculinity against a type that says everyone else is my servant, my instrument, and no one else is fully real. And both are real in our societies. 
So we have to say, where, where are, how can we cultivate the good kind? And I think that has many parts. Families do much of it. But I actually do want to say, and I, I say again and again, that good laws and good rules do a lot of the education and a lot of the cultivation. If you're brought up from the beginning to know as a young boy that sexual harassment of women in the workplace is not just boys being boys or eroticism, but it's actually an offense for which you might lose your job, that educates you. And it gets you to take women's feelings in the workplace much more seriously. So I'm, I'm all for education and I'm all for the, the male heroes of this story are, are very many. Where do we, we go next with the argument about consent? It's something that's much more foregrounded in certainly in talking about sex and in sex education and on campus and schools, on, on campus, both sides of the Atlantic in lots of different cultures. I still think people are much more kind of worried about it that they might sort of get it wrong while trying to do the right thing. Can consent ever really keep up with the many modes and expressions of sexual behaviours that human beings have? Well, I think it can, and I think it must. Look, the big problem is when two, both parties are so drunk that they don't even remember the next day. And that happens in a vast majority of undergraduate cases that come before our tribunals, I'm afraid. So one of the things I think is we must, in the United States, lower the drinking age so that these drunk parties, you know, we have an age of 21 for drinking. And what that means is that when undergraduates have parties, adults can't supervise because then they will be charged with the offense of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. So that means that all these bad things go on. And when people come to the tribunal, they can hardly remember what went on. So that is a problem. But I think more generally, when you're not drunk out of your mind, there's no reason why consent can't govern sexuality the way it right now governs any intimate procedure with your body that a doctor might perform to you. If I'm going to have a colonoscopy, believe me, I'm going to be signing documents and so on. Now with sex, you don't want to have the person signing documents, obviously, but it's not too much to expect. An affirmative expression of consent. Yes, I want this. And you can express it perhaps by gestures and not by voice, but affirmative expression of consent, not just lying back there and not saying no. But look, I mean, you've already puzzled me twice over, really. I mean, affirmative <laughs> affirmation by gesture, well, that seems to either cover a multitude of sins or lead to so many grey areas that they could very easily be, be misinterpreted. And the other point is, of course, that these things are not generally recorded. Not, as you say, they're not written down. So even if a form of words were used, and then, as you say, you get into interpretation, tone of voice. I, I, I say this not by the way to kind of talk down the whole idea of consent. But I'm just pointing out that there seem to be, when, when you advocate for it, you realize actually how difficult it is to have a definition of it. Well, I think it is difficult. And look, anything that you make rules about is going to have gray areas. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to make the rules. And I think people are too hasty, you know, to plunge into sex without thinking, is this really what the woman wants. And I think that women too are, are hasty. Rather than making their reluctance known and say, well, you know, I don't feel I'm really ready for this, they often just go with the flow and then regret it later. So we, what we need is a standard where it's not okay to go ahead unless you really say, yes, this is what I want. 
Now, as I say, it can sometimes be, you know, you just nod very enthusiastically, but not simply being passive. Because, of course, when women are drunk, they're often just passive. And then men think, oh, well, it's good, go, good to go ahead. There are many cases where men have been acquitted of rape, even if the woman is passed out. Now, that we must not have. So no means no is not enough. She didn't say no because she was passed out. So we want to raise women to be forthright about their views if they're reluctant to say, I'm reluctant, I'm not ready for this. And also men to respect that and to look for it and to wait, to wait and, and not think. You know, men often say, oh, I can't stop. And that's false. You can always stop. And if you're uncomfortable, too bad. But you can always stop and respect the woman. We've talked a lot about matters that arise from, from personal life. Let, let, let's talk a bit about public and, and national life. Uh, you've been involved in, in a debate. It's been going on a couple of years, really, about about, about cosmopolitanism and, and elites. So just to give our audience a flavour of the background to this, it was something that came up at the National Conservatism Convention in 2019 when a Republican uh, Senator, Josh Hawley, claimed the American middle class had been betrayed by an out-of-touch cosmopolitan elite whose primary loyalty was to the global community rather than the national one. And you were one of the few people he named specifically in this speech. In some ways, it seems like a pretty classic, slightly Trump era debate. But it set me thinking really about elites, intellectual elites, and how comfortable they are with nations, with nationalism, and with identities that are not as broad as their own are. And I wondered if it landed that way with you. Well, a lot of people wanted me to denounce him for misrepresenting my work, but I didn't want to do that because what he was reading was an op-ed I wrote in 1994, and he correctly reported what I said in 1994, but I had since changed my view, and in fact, quite quite radically. And I, my recent book is, is called The Cosmopolitan Ideal, A Noble But Flawed Tradition. Yeah, that, that struck me as quite a, a shift. Put aside the fact Josh Hawley had his own political motivations, was he kind of broadly more right about what you were thinking subsequently about the balance between the international and the national or local? My reasons for thinking that the national has a moral importance are probably not the same ones he has. I don't know, because he didn't really articulate his, his position very clearly. My view is basically the same view as Hugo Grotius in the 17th century, namely that the nation is the largest unit we know that really expresses people's voices reliably and is accountable to the people. So it can be a vehicle of people's autonomy. That is their desire, quite literally, to give themselves laws of their own choosing. So the nation has a special moral importance. And I don't think the international matters less. I just think that it ought to go through the national, that most forms of international engagement that are meaningful must be supported by the people of the nations who are engaging. So, I mean, I, I talk about what that means for the international human rights movement and so on, uh, but I'm, I don't cease to be just as concerned about global poverty and global suffering and so forth. It's just that I think the nation is accountable to people. The international world is not. After working in a UN agency, I feel that very vividly. It's got many defects, the UN, 
corruption, cronyism. But one is certainly total lack of accountability to the people because the people who are sent there are often sent there because they're somebody's friend or some, and they're definitely lacking in accountability to the people of the nation that they represent. So where does your argument go when it comes to vaccine nationalism? There are tensions arising from the COVID-19 vaccine rollout between internationalism and putting your own nation first. So how do you see the philosophical and ethical trade-offs in that question? I think the only chance of foreign aid being at all effective if it's very narrow and very specific. If we just thought, well, now it's our responsibility as a rich, beneficent parent of the world to give a lot of money to health and education and other welfare issues in the poorer countries, we know we have a lot of empirical evidence by now that that actually is counterproductive because it means that people expect to have this constant inflow and then it, it boosts dictators, people don't set up durable health infrastructure. In India, you can study it very neatly because there are different states that have different outcomes. And the ones like Tamil Nadu and Kerala, who have very good health outcomes, have it not because of foreign aid, but because they've voted in politicians who set up durable health systems. So anyway, we we know enough now to know that we can't just be the world's parent. It's paternalistic anyway and objectionable on that ground, but it doesn't work. So if it doesn't work, how are we going to do this? Well, I think that there's a great deal of hope in technology transfer, education transfer. So for example, our university has a center in Delhi that sponsors constant research projects where we pool our our knowledge and our resources with Indian doctors, Indian engineers, and Indian philosophers, you know, it's it's across the whole whole gamut of, of the university, to try to think through problems that are common to both nations. And I think there's a lot of aid that we can give in that way. And giving courses, education, giving technology, giving library facilities, all of these things are helpful. But I think just throwing money is not so helpful. Final thought to end on. It's a musical one. We're both very keen on opera. So I can't resist asking you with your legal and philosophical hat on, which operatic works do you think best represent your fields? What should we be going to see together if we get the chance? Well, my own personal love is for Mozart. And I guess, you know, of all the Mozart operas, I still think The Marriage of Figaro is the the most philosophical because it displays the fact that to make a revolution, you don't just change the class relations, but you have to change not only the gender relations, but also the whole way of all the emotions with which people relate to each other. The Ancien Regime was not just a political regime, but it was an emotional regime. And so the Count and Figaro have as many people have said, surprisingly similar musical phrases that they sing in their lordly way. So we have to overturn that. And I think Cherubino is the most philosophical character because he's the the male who was raised by the women. And he's capable of really wondering, what is love? And that's really the question we all need to ask. He's quite gender fluid. Well, he is gender fluid as well in the opera. So he's kind of right, right on, on 2021 for that. So if you, if you take me to the marriage of Figaro, will you come with me to, I'm going to take 
Verdi's Don Carlos is going to be mine because I think it's got everything. Oh, well, I was just about to, I'm teaching that tomorrow and I'm just writing on my other computer here, my class notes for that. Yes, I mean that, If I would have said that for, for law, absolutely. Martha and Miss Ma'am, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. We strayed a long way from sexual assault, but that was a lot of fun. So whose operatic side are you on? Martha's Marriage of Figaro or my Don Carlos? Vote for me, vote for me. Oh, vote for Martha and Figaro if you want. Or do you have another philosophical opera to throw into the ring? Do let us know by writing to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio or send your own operatic version. Thanks to all of you for sending in your grammatical bugbears following my conversation with the language expert John McWhorter recently. Lee Wasinski wrote in to say he'd noticed people on the east coast of the US getting a habit of dropping to be before a verb. These dishes need washed. That grinds his grammar gears. What does it do to yours? Also in his interview last week, John McWhorter raised his concerns about a university professor who was disciplined for using a Mandarin phrase because of its similarity in sound to the N-word. John incorrectly stated that the incident happened at Stanford. It was actually at the University of Southern California, and we're happy to clarify that. If you'd like to enjoy more of The Economist, then do become a subscriber. For your best introductory offer, please go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.